Claire looked at the clock, 11.59. She realises that she's been binge watching Netflix for the last five hours. Watching one episode is never enough to satisfy her. It's got to the point where Claire doesn't even care what the show is. All she wants after a long, stressful day at work is some mind-numbing entertainment. Doesn't matter if what she's watching is inappropriate. In fact, all the better because those shows entertain her slightly more than the others. As she drags herself away from the screen, she can't help but feel like all she's done with her evening is distract herself from real life. Yet again, her daily binge has done nothing to satisfy her longings for rest and joy. Mike just clinched the deal that was sure to bring him a big promotion. He was ecstatic. He may not have seen much of his wife and kids for a couple of weeks, he hasn't been at church in over a month, but it was worth it to get the deal over the line. Mike thinks, well, if I didn't work this hard, they would have, have to say goodbye to their private school education and sure, they'll be fine with it when they hear I'm taking them to Disneyland. And as for the church, well, if I didn't work this hard, I wouldn't be able to give as much. But deep down, Mike knows that he tells himself these things to justify how hard he's been working. For the last 10 years, it's been project after project and deal after deal. And with every bit of success that comes his way, he gets a buzz and he feels important, but the feeling never lasts. And before long, his eyes turn to the next thing, the next holiday, the next career move, the next car. If he's honest, he'd admit that the focus and determination he's put in his career has meant that his spiritual growth has stagnated. And it certainly meant he's had less time to disciple others or serve in the church as much as he would like. Debbie hears a knock on the door and runs to answer it. She opens the door, grabs the package and excitedly goes about opening it. Lockdown has been getting Debbie down so much that she's decided to indulge in a bit of retail therapy. She might not be able to show off her new clothes and her new shoes, but that certainly doesn't stop her from buying them. Anything to make her feel a bit better about herself. But as soon as Debbie has tried on the new outfit and put it in the wardrobe, she's straight back onto the phone looking for the next purchase. No matter how much she buys, there'll always be something else she feels she needs. Now, what each of these people have in common is that they look to the things of this world to provide them with satisfaction and contentment. Maybe you can relate to these examples, maybe not, but if we're honest with ourselves, we all have ways in which we are seduced by what this world has to offer. We all have times where we look to the world for our, for our satisfaction. Sometimes even to the point where we have replaced God with a worldly thing. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about worldliness. And Revelation 17 and 18 is one place where the Bible is really explicit about the dangers of looking to this world to fulfil our deepest longings. And what we have in these chapters is an expose. These chapters lift the lid on the idea that trusting in this world to meet our spiritual longings is a good idea. And they aim to show us how foolish that really is so that we will look to our relationship with Christ alone for all the things the world promises but can't deliver. Now, Chapter 17 is designed to teach us two lessons. Worldly pleasures are seductive, but won't satisfy. Worldly powers look strong, but won't survive. And then in chapter 18, we receive a big challenge to get out of bed with the world. And as we look at chapter 18, we see a stark contrast between two types of people. Those who have a relationship with the world and put their trust in worldly things, and those who have chosen to trust Christ and have a relationship with him 
instead. Hopefully that gives you an idea of where we're going this evening. It will be really helpful if you keep your Bible open as we go through it together. Now, at the start of chapter 17, there's a new picture introduced. The angel tells John he is about to see the punishment of a great prostitute who sits on many waters. And the angel says this great prostitute has intoxicated the kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the earth with the wine of her adulteries. Who is this great prostitute? Well, we see her name in verse 5. She is Babylon the Great. In verse 18, she's also described as a great city. So which is it? Is she a woman or a city? Well, both. The prostitute and the city of Babylon both represent the same thing in these chapters. They both represent the spiritual adultery or idolatry of the world. Humanity owes its allegiance to God, but in their sin and rebellion, the opposite is true. Humanity has gone to the things of this world to fulfill their spiritual longings rather than to God. That's now where their allegiance lies. They've left God, God behind and got into bed with a prostitute. Using God's gifts for their pleasure, but without acknowledging him, thanking him or using his gifts within the boundaries that he has set up. Why is this prostitute sitting on waters? Well, verse 15 tells us that these waters she is sitting on represent multitudes of people, nations and languages. This woman, this city, they have a worldwide influence. These images represent a global problem. All human beings are seduced by the things of this world. This spiritual adultery is so prevalent so all-consuming that it drives the world's systems. Now, once this prostitute is introduced, John is taken into a desert and he sees this woman sitting on a scarlet beast covered in blasphemous names with seven heads and ten horns. She's dressed in purple and scarlet, glittering with gold and precious stones. Just like the world she represents, she looks so appealing and attractive. She's seductive and enticing and she's holding a golden cup filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. What she holds out looks so attractive from the outside. If you want to be happy, you need more money and more stuff. If you want to feel significant, then you need to get that promotion and rise to the top. If you want more intimacy, you need to sleep with more people. But no matter what she offers, she is unable to satisfy our deepest longings. What she offers sounds good. It looks satisfying, it looks life-giving, but actually it doesn't satisfy. It's like drinking filth, it's like drinking toilet water. And this description is making the point that worldly pleasures are seductive, but won't satisfy. Worldly pleasures are seductive, but won't satisfy. Then in verse six, we learn that this prostitute is drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. This worldly, adulterous spirit has resulted in the deaths of many believers. There's no room for God or people faithful to him in this worldly agenda. And what comes next is really difficult to understand and I'm just going to give it my best go. Um, after John sees this image of the woman riding on the beast, he is astonished and so the angel begins to explain the mystery of the woman and the beast she is riding on. And basically, the angel explains that this beast represents the spirit of the Antichrist, or as Paul calls it in 2 Thessalonians, the secret power of lawlessness that keeps cropping up again and again in history. 
The beast also represents the Antichrist himself, the man of lawlessness who will be leading a final rebellion just before the world is coming to an end. So in other words, this beast represents worldly, political, empirical power at its worst. How did I get that? Well, verse 8 says that this beast will come out of the abyss and go to its destruction, but only after the inhabitants of the earth whose names aren't written in the book of life are astonished by it. Verse 11 tells us that this beast itself is also a king. So this beast represents a world leader, doomed for destruction, who will lead the world astray. And that fits exactly with what Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians, that at the end, the lawless one will be revealed, lead a rebellion, and then Jesus will destroy him. In verse 9 and 10, we're told that the seven heads on the beast's head are seven hills and also seven kings, five of which have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. In verse 12, we're told that the ten horns on the beast represent future kings who will come before the beast, the Antichrist, comes to power in verse 13. So these heads and these horns represent powerful men who will rise and fall throughout history. They have a time, they die, the world catches its breath, believe they're gone, but the relief is short-lived and another one rises up. And this is the cycle that keeps occurring. Um, many Antichrists will rise up for the reign of terror and then fall before eventually the Antichrist is revealed. As for the seven hills, well, when John heard seven hills, he would have immediately thought of Rome, which was famous for having seven hills. In John's day, this beast was the Roman Empire. Here in the text is a message for the original readers. Rome looked so immovable and powerful to them, it was persecuting them because they wouldn't worship the emperor. But they need to see heaven's perspective, that Rome is fragile and its time is limited, so that they won't give up. So now we have a fuller picture of what this great prostitute riding on this beast represents. We're looking at a marriage of spiritual adultery and authoritative worldly power. A marriage that we can see all throughout history. Governments and leaders rising to power because they offer the people less tax, more prosperity, more freedom, a bigger chunk of the world's resources. And the people are so seduced by the world's goods so blinded by their own worldly desires that they will gladly follow, not realising that they are being used for an individual's agenda. But here's the big point of this vision. Here's the expose we need to pay attention to. Look with me to verse 14. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and with him will be his called, chosen and faithful followers. This concentration of power and spiritual adultery that keeps popping its head up and making war with the Lamb throughout history is just a house of cards. It looks impressive and formidable, but it's very fragile. They are no match for Jesus Christ. And when this final rebellion rises up, Jesus will overcome it with ease. As Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, Jesus will overthrow them with the breath of his mouth. Jesus will blow and the house of cards will fall down. For John's readers suffering persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire, this would have been like water in the desert. They needed to hear that Rome would one day fall. For us, it's a reminder that no earthly power is worth putting our trust in. And when we see evil regimes rise up in the world, we aren't to be afraid or surprised, but we're to remember that worldly powers look strong, but won't survive. Worldly powers look strong, but won't survive. Now, that only leads us halfway towards what these chapters are designed to do. 
We've seen that the pleasures and the power of the world are not worth putting our trust in. And now in chapter 18, we're going to see that putting our trust in Christ is the only alternative. Because this chapter challenges us to get out of bed with the world. Get out of bed with the world. After she's been used and abused by the kings of the world, Babylon, this great city slash prostitute, meets a similar sticky end. At the start of chapter 18, another angel comes down and declares, Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the Great. Babylon's destruction is so certain that this is in the past tense. And look what this great city has become in verse 2. She's become a home for demons, a hunt for every evil spirit and unclean bird. Like a scene from the Terminator, Babylon is now a post-apocalyptic wasteland. In a moment, all the pleasure the world had to offer, all the powers that had set themselves up in the world are gone and there's nothing left. Now, the bulk of the rest of chapter 18 deals with how the people react to the news that Babylon has fallen. And we can see that there are two different responses to Babylon's destruction, two types of people who relate very differently to this fallen city. On one side, there's God's people who haven't indulged in Babylon and they rejoice. And on the other side, the people who threw their lot in with what the world had to offer lose everything and lament. But let's look at that first group of people and their reaction. Believers who come out of the world will rejoice. Believers who come out of the world will rejoice. In verse 4, God's people are warned to keep their distance in case they get entangled in Babylon's sins and by extension her downfall. A voice from heaven says, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins and so that you will not receive any of her plagues. They're told to make sure they're outside the safety zone while this condemned building gets demolished. Because according to verse 6, God is going to pay back the city double for what she's done. Verse 7 says she will experience torture and grief. And to top it off, verse 8 says this city is headed for God's judgment and will be consumed by fire. This call to come out of the world is still so applicable for us today. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to steer clear of the sins of Babylon. We are to walk in the freedom from sin that Christ has accomplished for us on the cross and keep ourselves separate from the world. Now, that doesn't mean that we go and live like hermits or check into our local monastery. It means that as new creations in Christ Jesus, we no longer live like we used to live in Babylon. Geographically, we still live in the world, but spiritually, we're not of it. We are called not to indulge in their spiritual adultery. Rather than using all the good things that God has made to try and bring us satisfaction, we know that our spiritual longings can only be satisfied in him. That doesn't mean we don't watch TV. It doesn't mean getting a promotion is bad. It doesn't mean earning money or buying nice things is bad. It means that we no longer worship these things or place burdens on these things they were never meant to carry. Rather than asking them to do something that only God can do, we can enjoy them for what they are within the boundaries that God has set up in his word. And as if avoiding Babylon's demolition is not enough, we get additional motivation to come out of her in verse 20, when we see the reaction of God's people. It says, Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she has treated you. When Babylon falls, those who listened to God's call to come out of her will be in heaven rejoicing. As Babylon is judged for the way she treated us, 
Instead of lamenting over this fallen city, we will, we will rejoice forever in a much better city. We will live forever in the new Jerusalem. Instead of a post-apocalyptic wasteland, we will live in a city made of pure gold. A place where nothing impure will ever enter it. Where there'll be no more pain and no more death. A place that is illuminated by the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, we need to heed this challenge to stop flirting with the world. We need to get out of bed with her. Because what God has in store for us is so much better. And let's allow this chapter to lead us to give our hearts a bit of a checkup. Ask yourself, if, if this world was to end tonight, would you be disappointed? Or would you be genuinely happy that you're going to be with Jesus? Are there things in the world that you love more than the Lord Jesus? If you're listening tonight and you're not a Christian yet, then please heed those words. Come out of her. Abandon that sinking ship and climb aboard the lifeboat of salvation that God has provided for you in Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus to die on the cross and to rise again from the dead so that our sin could be forgiven and we could have new life in him. Put your trust in him and get out of that condemned building before it's too late. Because here's the thing, there's a second group of people in this chapter. Unbelievers who stay in the world will lose everything. Unbelievers who stay in the world will lose everything. After the news breaks that Babylon has fallen and this declaration from the voice from heaven that Babylon is to be judged and consumed by fire, we have a series of laments that start in verse 9. And these laments come from three different sets of people. In verse 10, the kings of the earth are terrified by Babylon's torment and they weep and mourn. The great city of power has fallen in a single hour. Obviously, it wasn't as powerful as they thought. In verse 11, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn because no one buys their goods anymore. And they list off a big catalogue of the world's goods that they used to buy and sell. And in verse 14, they say, all the riches and splendour have vanished, never to be recovered. They can't get over the fact that all the wealth of this city has gone up like a cloud of smoke. What they had wasn't so valuable after all. Then the last group of people are the sailors and the sea captains. They lament because all the ships on the sea became rich through Babylon's wealth and now she's gone. In one hour, she's been brought to ruin. Everything these people live for, they lost in a moment. And yes, they mourn over Babylon, but what these people really cared about, what they're really mourning over, is what Babylon offered them. It's the material pleasures that Babylon gladly provided them that they are so distraught to have lost. What they really cared about was themselves. But that's what life in Babylon is all about. It's all about living for yourself. And that's what sin is, living your life as if you are God. The idol that you ultimately worship is yourself. And what these laments are here to show us is that if you put your trust in something that isn't Christ, you will lose it. If something other than Christ occupies your heart, you will lose it. The only thing anyone can keep forever is a relationship with Jesus Christ. But the warning goes even further. It's not just what they love that those who don't trust in Christ stand to lose. They also stand to lose their own lives. There is a warning in this chapter that the people who choose to stay in Babylon are in danger of judgment. We've already seen in verse 5 to 8 where the voice from heaven declares that Babylon will be consumed with fire. 
But we, we see it again in verse 21, where an angel picks up a boulder and throws it to the bottom of the sea. The destruction and the judgment that's coming to this world will be so severe. It will be like uh, Babylon has been thrown into the sea. There isn't going to be a single trace of Babylon and all who are in it left. If you're not a Christian, the warning could not be stronger. If you centre your energies, your hopes in a philosophy that limits life to possessions, position and pleasure, you're going to be overthrown. If you love this world, it will pass away and take you with it. Come to Jesus before it's too late. This doesn't have to be your fate. All God asks is that, is that you repent of living for yourself and you put your trust in his son, Jesus Christ, who took the punishment we deserve on the cross, who rose again from the dead so that we could have eternal life in him. Now, just as we finish tonight, as Christians, it's easy to hear a passage like this and think, I am so worldly and to feel guilt and shame. And it's easy to respond in a legalistic way and think, I need to clean up my act and stop being so worldly. But I don't think that's how we're supposed to think about this passage. Yes, there absolutely is a warning for us here to avoid worldliness. These chapters have shown us just how foolish trusting in the world is. And there is a challenge here that we search our hearts and examine whether we love the world more than we love God. But we also live with the reality that until the day that Christ returns to perfect us, we all struggle with Babylon. We are all constantly tempted to get back into bed with her. If you're struggling with the things of this world like Claire or Mike or Debbie or in some other way, God hasn't left you on your own. He wants you to go to him. He is so willing to forgive you and to help you in your fight against worldliness and sin. Don't think for one second that the God who brought you out of Babylon is going to allow you to go back there. If you're struggling with love for this world, the remedy to your worldliness is to look to Christ and fall more in love with him. It's to ask God that by his grace, he would replace your affections for this world for affections for him. It's to remember how gracious God was when he brought you out of this world in the first place and to remember that in Christ, you are a new creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the challenge in these chapters in Revelation. And Lord, we do pray that you would uh, reveal in our hearts where we have gone to worldly things to fulfill our deepest longings. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive us and that you would cleanse us, that you would remind us of the grace that you've shown us in Jesus Christ, that you would change our affections, that we would love you and you alone, and we would live lives that acknowledge that the only thing that we can take with us is our relationship with you. Father, we pray for all those who might be listening tonight who aren't yet saved, all those who we know and love. Lord, we pray for them. And Lord, we ask that they would come out of her before it's too late. And we ask that you would accomplish that uh, by your grace and in your mercy. And we pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.